Welcome to the Union Jews Podcast. The UK's only All Things Union podcast, designed for your downloadable digital delight and appreciation. There's a real willingness for people in unions to use data. People want to, and they know that it's something that they could be doing more with. And that message was loud and clear from everyone we spoke to. But there's often a real lack of clarity about what that actually means. Hello, 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 and welcome to Union Dues, the UK's only all things union podcast. I'm Simon Sapper, and the voice you just heard was Tom Hunt, who's Deputy Director of the Sheffield Political Economy Research Institute, or SPERI for short, and the author of a major new report from Unions 21 entitled Using Data to Build Unions. It was launched with presentations from those unions featured in the report and from Unions 21 Executive Director Becky Wright at a really well-attended event this afternoon. In this special episode of Union Dues, we will be looking at the report's findings how unions define data, what it's used for, and why best practice in this area amounts to significant cultural change for individual unions and, in fact, the trade union movement as a whole. We'll also hear practical examples from Linda Kelly of Ireland's Public Service Union Forsa and Melantha Chittenden of Community about their own experiences of harnessing the transformative power of data. But first to Tom Hunt, the author of the report. I started off by asking him about the basis for the survey work that led to the report's recommendations. Tom, the project is called Using Data to Build Strong Unions, but what exactly contributed to the project? What's it all about? So what the project is about is we did a piece of work last year which looked at how trade unions were adapting their work during the pandemic. And in the conversations that I had with lots of different people in unions during that project, there was a real sense that issues around data, around digital technologies and the way in which both were changing the jobs that members do, but also the work of unions, were getting a bit confused. There were a lot of things that were getting jumbled up together, such as how data was being used by employers for workplace surveillance. And then in the same conversation, people would be talking about how data was being used to have much more use of member surveys. And we felt that it would be useful to sort of unpack the issues, disentangle them, and have a look at how are people thinking about data within unions and how are they understanding data. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely uh, empathise with that because in the discussions I've had with trade union reps, both national reps and, and local reps over the last two years during the pandemic, it's clear that, that there's been a lot of change. Things have been really thrown up in the air and people have found almost they're bespoke solutions, but they're also almost like ad hoc solutions as well. So 
I, I, I get what you say about unpacking all this, but what's, what's the methodology that you were able to use? Because it's one thing to unpack it. It's another thing to make sense of it. Essentially, we, we went out and we spoke to lots of different people in all sorts of different roles in unions to find out what they understood by data and how they were using it. And that included people who work in finance departments, HR departments, general secretaries, organisers. And we deliberately didn't try to speak to people who just do data or kind of are already in roles with kind of digital in the title. We wanted to speak to everybody in a wide range of roles. So we had one-on-one interviews, we organized roundtable discussions, and there was also a survey that we, we put out to some of our contacts just to really get a sense of how people were thinking about it. And then from there, there were some follow-up conversations, but that was the basis for the research. And that took place through the autumn of last year. Well, that's a really diverse, uh, wide range of, of, of inputs. And I, I, I've got to congratulate you on synthesising them into such a readable, accessible uh, report. What are the main takeaways that all that told you? I think one of the big takeaways is that there's a real willingness for people in unions to use data. People want to, and they know that it's something that they could be doing more with. And that message was loud and clear from everyone we spoke to. But there's often a real lack of uncertain, real lack of clarity, rather, about what that actually means. And there's a sense that the jumbled upness that I talked about at the beginning is actually because we don't often define what we mean by data. And so in the report, we go right back to the beginning to look at what data is, what just what is it that we're talking about here, and why does it matter? And by setting that out, we can then hopefully demonstrate to people in unions how it connects up to the jobs that they do. And data is records, it's facts, it's numbers, it's statistics, it's documents that are collected together. And then when they're analysed, we get information from them. And that is the big takeaway from the report. Data gives us information. And when it's understood like that, we want to get across to people that data isn't new. Unions have been using data Last year, during the pandemic, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, data was held in union logbooks, in filing cabinets through the last 20th century. Now it might be held in in different formats and there are new ways to analyse it. But there is no job in a trade union, no role that does not use data in some form, whether or not people who are doing those jobs realise it. Uh, and that's true. I mean, you, you, what you say, I, I absolutely identify with what you 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 say, and it brings to mind the catchphrase of a, of a, a soap opera character from long ago who was fond of saying, "Knowledge is power." Knowledge is power, but you have to understand that you've got that knowledge before you can exercise the power. And therefore, I think one of the the things that the report does very well is it says when we're talking about data, we're also talking about data governance, we're talking about data infrastructure, we're talking about data literacy, and all those things go together 
to make sure that that unions are able to use the data that they have and that they've always had in the most effective way. Would you is that a, a reasonable summary, or have I got it wrong? Yes. <laughs> I got it wrong. No, that's that's exactly right. Somebody said to me during the interview process that one of the big things about data literacy is that really the, the key thing that we've got to think about is putting the information that we have in front of us in context. To give you an example, union officials and reps are well used to scrutinising information that's presented to them by employers to say, mm, we're not sure about this and we want to sort of have a look under the bonnet of what you're presenting to us. And that's about present, putting it in context. And so it's also about applying that same logic to internal data to say, why are we sure about what we're doing? What's our evidence? And can we review? Can we evaluate? And can we adjust to improve our effectiveness? The biggest takeaway, I suppose, from the report is that in order to use data effectively, you have to really focus in on purpose. It's about strategy before tactics. If you need to clear about what their aims are, then they can ask themselves, if we're going to meet that aim, what do we need to know? What's the evidence that we need in order to make the strongest possible case in order to win the best deal for our members, build a stronger union and be a more effective union? And so we take it right back and say, that's the fundamental thing to focus on when it comes to understanding data. What purpose are you trying to achieve? What information do you need? Then you can get onto the hows of data, the what technology might you need, what investments might you need, but they're all secondary. And a lot of the conversation to date has been putting those tactical questions before strategic questions. I see. I see. Because because in the report, there's reference to the right decisions being taken by, by unions. And I suppose that's exactly what is meant. It's putting strategy ahead of tactics rather than the rather than the other way around. I see. Okay. So how how can data used in that way be the catalyst for cultural change, though? Because I understand what you say about putting strategy ahead of tactics, but most people would, or many people would put, put culture ahead of strategy. Culture eats strategy for breakfast is a, is a well-known phrase, isn't it? Isn't it? So, so how, how can data be the catalyst for cultural change in, in unions? I spoke to an organiser during the research who told me that about 10 years ago, they were the first person in their union to use SurveyMonkey, which many of us are familiar with, free survey tool, and they used it to consult members about a particular issue that they were facing at the time. And they got an overwhelming response. And suddenly, this organiser had a huge wealth of data and information about the conditions that their members were experiencing that they could then use and deploy in a campaign and ultimately win that campaign. And this organiser described to me the sort of fairly mind-blowing response from their colleagues who couldn't sort of understand how they had so much information. Now, this was 10 years ago, 
But since then, more and more of colleagues wanted to know, well, how can I do that? How can I use surveys in my organizing work? And they described that today, 10 years on, the idea of putting out member surveys and, and regularly seeking views during disputes is just part of the culture of the union. And that came about because someone had used a new tool to get new data, win a better deal for their members, and then the ball started rolling and more and more people got on board. And that's that began to change the culture. So, so not, not so much a ball starting to roll, but a snowball rolling down the mountainside, getting bigger and bigger and bigger as it as it, go, as it goes. I see that. So is it... From what you've said, is it fair then to characterise what the report calls the Union Way 2.0 as the establishment of a of a sharing culture as opposed to a silo-based culture? Yes, I think it is. I think what we talk about in the report as the Union Way is something that a number of colleagues highlighted to me as being the sense that things are just done because that's how they've always been done. Yeah. And we sort of use this phrase in the report about the Union Way 2.0 to say, actually, what that means is asking ourselves all the time, why do we do it like this? And could it be done any differently? Oh, that's heretical talk in some places, you know, heretical talk. <laughs> and, and often that requires sharing information. A colleague referred to some work that they were doing to simply just track down who knew various bits of information. They described it as sort of data detective work. And sharing information enables people to sort of join dots that haven't been joined up before and think, well, I could use that information in my work. And so it's about sharing but it's also about, I suppose, scrutinising with a view to seeking to improve overall effectiveness. Right. I mean, but, I mean, the research identifies that not all unions do have that culture of sharing good practices and, and, and new information. What? Why do you think that is? What are the barriers to creating that kind of sharing, open, output-orientated culture? I think... Partly, people are just so busy in unions. <laughs> Again, in conversations I was having with people about this, there was a sense that I'd love to, I'd love to kind of do some more research. I'd love to share this information that I've got with colleagues, but I haven't got the time to do it. And I suppose the challenge to that is that you can save time and work more efficiently when information is shared, if you're having to hunt down information that you're trying to get hold of. Let me give you an example of how this can be done in a very low cost way. One union described how they were setting up at the moment a centrally held record of pay agreements that had been struck with employers up and down the country. This information existed, but it was scattered throughout the union. And so when an organiser or a negotiator needed to 
find out how things have gone in another company, they often have to sort of hit the phones and work out, all right, who knew, who knows what, where can they get this? And by simply having a shared system where this information is available, the union could already begin to see that this was going to save their colleagues a lot of time. And by sharing information, they could be more effective in learning which agreements have been struck elsewhere and which could they deploy in their own work. Tom, if we look, if we look at some of the case studies in the uh, in the report, and I mean, one of the, the great things about it is so many unions have clearly had an input and are cited in the report, which is which is very encouraging for those of us who believe that this is a necessary evolution or revolution in the way unions unions work. But but one, the Danish finance union, Finance Forbundet, I think I pronounced that right. They looked around their sector, their fin- the finance sector, and they thought that actually there's no central resource to to drive the sector forward and provide more employment and range of employment and future proofing the jobs of our members so they 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 collaborated with other stakeholders to to create a fintech hub as as it were and i just wondered i mean did that work for the union did they did they see a a a return if you like in terms of increased membership or or increased leverage in some particular way that they could quantify i think it's a really interesting example and also one that brilliantly shows how forward-looking unions can use data to meet their aims. So what this Finance Forbunda did is back in 2014, they they looked around the Danish finance industry and said, where might the sector grow and evolve and they looked at the UK and they looked at other countries and they saw that fintech sectors hubs were beginning to develop in other countries but they didn't really exist in Denmark at the time and they looked I suppose a little bit into a crystal ball but used this information that they'd got from doing research in other countries and said well if we have a fintech sector that grows in Denmark and we're not represented within it then that's not good for our long-term aim to be the finance sector union. And what will conditions be like in that part of the finance industry if we're not there? And as you say, Simon, they use that information, that data, to work with the Copenhagen municipality to set up a fintech hub. They then struck a collective agreement with all partners in that hub, and they're now growing their membership in the growing fintech sector in Denmark. Their bet proved correct because they had used data from other countries and said, this is going to happen here. And now they're well positioned to be the voice of people who work in fintech in Denmark and have done so already laying the foundations for good conditions in that sector gosh i mean i mean that's i mean that is very forward looking it's you know it's it's being guided by data in terms of where you put your investment in time and time and money but the other piece of the equation which i hadn't appreciated until you just said it is the role of the municipal authority and in in terms of seeing how that could apply say in the uk sector I suppose you need to start with them. You, you can imagine, like the mayor of London's office, or 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 the mayor of Manchester's office. You know, the, the the big the big conurbation mayors would be in a position to contribute in that way. 
which I find very exciting because it means it's realistic to think this could happen here. This could happen. I mean, if you if Media City in Salford was being developed now, you could imagine the dialogue between 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 say back back to and the other industries in the creative sector and, and Andy Burnham's office. Um, mm. you, you absolutely could. And and what this demonstrates is that we you know we started talking about this by you asking me about data. And on the face of it, people might hear, you know, our discussion of the Danish finance union and think, well, that's got nothing to do with data. Data is numbers. Data is statistics. Data is all about kind of digital stuff. Data comes into the equation for unions when they're very, very clear about their purpose. And that purpose for the Danish finance union was to grow the membership in the financial sector, but improve conditions. And as you say, back to prospects, the Bakers Union, the RMT, every union has clear aims that they want to achieve. And the reason that we put those aims up front and centre in the report is by saying it's then that you can turn to data to help you meet those aims. It's putting why before how and strategy before tactics. But, and the but, the but is... You, you could say those unions have reached a sort of epiphany, almost that that, that they realise that that either they're going to drive the data they have, or the or the data is going to escape their control and drive drive them somewhere where perhaps they don't have the same control or or, or end product. But how resource hungry is is that data driven approach? Because as as we know, unions are really constrained in terms of the resources we've got. There's always the the, the, the tension bet- between organising and servicing. The financial, you know, unions are hit by the cost of living crisis as much as anything else in terms of members perhaps not being able to to afford their subs in their mind in terms of utility costs going up and, and, and so on. Is it impossible, given the constraints unions are are operating under, to adopt a data? driven decision-making process unless and until you reach that sort of crisis point or that epiphany point? No, I I don't think so. Now, if you want to make investments in new uh, systems and software and hire data professionals, as some unions are beginning to do, the CSP and Unison are investing in head of data positions and and building up their research and and data analytical capacity, then yes, of course, there is a cost to that. But I would say that it actually will prove cost-effective in the long run. If you're investing in a new membership system that enables you to keep in much more regular contact with your members, you can survey them more easily and you can analyze the responses that they're telling you. If that helps you to identify that actually a huge percentage of our members leave after six months and now we know why and we can take some steps to remedy that and retain our members more, then I think the upfront costs over time would pay off. I think there's plenty more examples like that. The other thing about um, investing in technology is that what came through very clearly from a number of conversations I had in a whole range of unions is that there was a sense that sometimes 
the union had been locked into quite expensive and long-term contracts with suppliers of various systems that they were using. And they didn't always feel that they were getting a good service or the best value for money from them. And there's a mood within some unions that I spoke to, to move to a more modular approach to technology, where they use sort of off-the-shelf products and they stitch together a, a range of different tools to help them meet their aims. What that means they can do is if something isn't working as well as they like, or they're not making enough use of it, they can eat more easily swap things in and out and build up their approach over time, rather than being locked in to one central provider who does everything. So I think there are ways in which investments can be made which actually save money for the long term yeah yeah i would i would certainly agree with that and recognize recognize that changing changing tag just just somewhat i'm i'm, I'm i wonder does your research indicate kind of that views on or comfort with data vary across age groups and the reason i ask is because of course the perception of data that's held by say digital natives younger younger officers younger rep, younger reps younger people in in general that may make them more data confident but of course relatively few of people of that age are in leadership leadership positions i think it is broadly right that younger members of staff and younger reps are more confident in perhaps thinking through how they could use data but that doesn't necessarily always translate into that strategic level thinking that is needed to guide the use of data effectively. So I did speak to some senior colleagues in general secretary and you know, director roles. And whilst they may not have necessarily had the technical know-how to work to know the kind of way around the back end of systems that they'd invested in, they knew that this was the right thing for the union to do, and they'd hired data professionals in order to do that. I think the key thing is, is about coming back to why are we doing this? Not everyone always needs to have the same level of expertise, but if you're asking the right questions, then you can make the right investments of time, staff and resources in order to help answer them. Excellent, excellent. So Tom, the, this this report is being uh, published by Unions 21 at the end of April 2022. We're recording this ahead of publication date, but where's where next? Because of, as you, as you uh, indicated, we've spoken about this before on the Union Jews podcast, and I'm sure we'll speak about it again, but, but what's traje- what is the trajectory of this work going forward? In the in the shorter term, the trajectory after publication is that a number of unions who were involved in the research have already said we want to work with with you and with Unions Twenty One to think through with our colleagues how we can begin to implement some of the things that you were talking about in the report, and so. There will be a program, I think, of of meetings and potentially training workshops with a range of unions to begin to share that knowledge. Well, well, Tom, I look forward 
to us resuming this discussion when some of that water has flowed under the bridge. But in the meantime, congratulations on a really good report. And thanks very much for spending time uh, recording this podcast. Thanks, Simon. My thanks for Tom for being so candid and descriptive in, in the insights he shared with us. Now, one of the best things about this well-written and very accessible report is the use of case studies to demonstrate in practical terms the difference that effective use of data can make. Linda Kelly is Director of Training and Development for Ireland's second largest union, Forsa. Now, Forsa is a fairly newly merged union, so her take on how, in that context, the union came to the conclusion that a data-driven evaluation of training was needed, what the evaluation revealed, and what changed as a result is a really fascinating and vital case study. Linda, Director of Training and Development for Ireland's second largest union, largest public sector union, Forza. Thank you very much for joining us on, on the podcast. How, how did the union come to the conclusion that a data-driven evaluation of training was even needed? I think to be able to answer that question, need to rewind slightly just to the amalgamation, Simon, because what happened was, uh, to put it in context for people, three unions came together to join Forza in 2018. And as part of, I suppose, one of the consequences of that was a look at the staffing structures and a look at where our staffing resources were being deployed. And one of the things that came out of that discussion was the need to actually have a director of training and development for the FORSA as a union. While there had previously been people in a training role um, at different levels in impact, one of the former unions, the other two unions didn't actually have any dedicated staff for training. So one of the decisions that was made as a consequence of the amalgamation was we need to have a senior member of staff responsible for training and development of our activists. And that then set in motion, I suppose, the consequences that led to the evaluation in that I was hired as the director of training and development, an internal appointment I had worked for the union for a number of years already. And so then the question, how did it come about, was because... I wanted it to come about because it was it was very obvious. And it, this is just from informal conversations with people that the training wasn't hitting the spot like that was clear from kind of participants coming to courses. So what we were kind of doing in that transition period just after the amalgamation was all of the training programs that impact one of the former unions had got kind of some Forza logos slapped on them and they were being delivered and there was new members coming from the other constituent unions. And it was very clear from the tutors and from the participants that while there was some value in this for everybody, it really wasn't kind of hitting the mark of where a really top-notch training programme needed to be for our union. And it was actually from a lot of those informal conversations that we decided to do a formal evaluation and I think that's really important that, you know, people don't lose sight of the informal feedback loops that are in organisations because that is data as well. Yeah. Sure, um, sure. And oftentimes people think maybe, oh, if, if it's not in a survey or if it's not kind of written out in a report, it doesn't matter. But actually, you can learn a lot from conversations at the end of a training day, conversations, you know, those water cooler 
canteen conversations that you have with people. And so what happened was I went to our training subcommittee, which is our elected representatives, and said, look, I think there's a kind of growing sense from conversations I'm having that this isn't really working for the new organization. And we need to really kind of pull out what is it people want to keep? What do people want us to stop doing? And what do people want us to do better and to introduce that's new? And they agreed. And then we set on a path of kind of six to nine months actually asking those questions of all of our different stakeholders. And the outcome of that then um, had numerous different recommendations, which I, I envisage is probably your next question. Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely reading my script script there, Linda. But I mean, I, I, I'm struck by the fact, fact that that process of, of like soft data, if you like, becoming so loud, so so insistent, there was a clearly a, a need to, to to solidify that, to make it more structured and more uh, more objective rather than kind of subjective, and that the elected members of the training committee will will be aware of that just as much as you are as their as their director or or, or national officer. So hopefully, it was an easy transition. But as you as you indicated, the next question is, what did that reveal? So we we were hampered a little bit by COVID. We were a good bit into the evaluation. We were a few months into the evaluation when COVID hit. So we had done a desk review of all of our actual physical training materials. Like I had gone to the other former union staff and said, if you have training folders somewhere tucked away in a box or whatever it is, can you give them to me? I did the same. So I collected as much actual hard copy training materials as possible. Um, and we reviewed everything in a desk review. We also then did a whole load of training needs analysis surveys with different groups. So depending on what your position was in the union. So if you were on a national executive committee, you got a survey. If you were on a branch executive committee, you got a survey. Staff got surveyed, all of that sort of. We had a similar uh, survey with a similar set of questions, but with different cohorts. And what we actually found out was that people really valued the training. And there were things that people valued that maybe weren't obvious to us on the first instance. So people really valued that the training was now put on in our union offices rather than in hotels, because it made them feel more connected to the union as an organization and as a community. We also found out that people really valued the connection of meeting members from different branches and different divisions. So that was that's always a tension for us as a large union is whether or not training courses should be tailored to people in a specific division like health and welfare or whether it should be across all divisions in the union and what the evaluation showed us is that members really value a cross-divisional approach and hearing that the issues in the civil service are actually the same as in local government but just with some different terminology mm, and language yeah, on it. Yeah. But what we found, and I think what was really interesting, one of the biggest changes we had to make was that we didn't have enough basic introductory training. So what we considered to be our baseline training, uh, our workplace representative training, which was uh, previously a four day course, people felt that was too much for new representatives. People were starting on our workplace rec course and they were asking questions like, what's a union? What's FORSA? 
how does it work? And so we developed two short courses and they're kind of three hour short courses. And it's really, we call them our 101 courses. It's, this is what force is. This is how force came into being. These are the groups we represent. This is our structure. And that has been hugely successful hugely successful the first round that we went out to invite people to attend that course we had over 100 people apply and I suspect it's not even six months since we ran it I'll be going out again in a few weeks and I suspect another 100 people are going to apply for it and so huge huge positive learning for us there but certainly that sense if we had just continued to do things the way we had always done them because there wasn't a massive protest about the way that we had always done them, we would have missed out on this really key piece of information, which is that our potential workplace representatives and our emerging workplace representatives were feeling totally lost Mm. in our union without this sort of training. And I think, you know, that's been really a wonderful, positive piece of learning for us but as an organisation. It's, it's also been existential, hasn't it? It's an absolutely fundamental piece of future-proofing the union. Absolutely. And I think as well, you know, we would have really strong branch activists, people who get involved and who stay involved for decades and who, you know, really are very committed to the union. But I just get the sense that people are so busy in their lives now, maybe different coming out of COVID, that they don't want necessarily that. They want a commitment to an organisation that shares their values. But They want to be able to hop on. They want to be able to hop off when they need to. And I think we have to be dynamic in our training and in our representation representative structures to be able to facilitate that because in the same way that people need to be able to bring their whole self to work they also need to be able to bring their whole self to the union and for a union like us where our membership is predominantly women expecting huge levels of commitments at different varying points of a life cycle is an unrealistic ask as well as having introductory training, what we have also looked at is rather than kind of having one singular advanced course for people who are involved for a number of years in the union, we have actually pulled those out to make the different topics courses in and of themselves. Because what we found were that advanced activists and, and people who've been involved for a number of years, they were plateauing. And so it was this idea that you did this kind of one advanced course and then your training, your learning, everything stopped. There was kind of nothing else for you. And that's one thing that we're really keen to move away from because we really want to embrace lifelong learning and adult learning as well, uh, right across the life cycle of an activist in the union. So the idea is, is that people might start with a Force 101, they get involved and feel empowered to represent members in their area at a much earlier stage, but also then that the support and the scaffolding for you in your role as a leader within the union is also expanded and that you're always gaining new skills in different areas. So really taking a much more elongated view of people's activism and how far into the 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 cycle if you like are you at what point are you going to stop and look back and review and then adjust as as needs be 
So what we've done is we've actually devised a quality assurance protocol for all of our training. So what we have done is every training course has a feedback mechanism in it. So uh, we have a group of staff who are involved in setting out the programs for each of the training courses. And then after a training course has been delivered, we obviously go out and ask participants what their feedback has been. Then we do a debrief with the tutors. And that happens for every training course as a matter of course. Then what we're going to do on a yearly basis is we're going to track people who have done the training as to what's their path through the training, if that makes sense. So are they just coming to one course and we don't see them again? Or are they coming and working their way through courses as we envisage them? And then our expectation is, is that in five years time, in five years time from the original evaluation, we will do another in-depth evaluation as well. So we have the sort of the... The regular evaluation, if that makes sense, of courses, um, that's proven very, very useful. We'll have a yearly one. And then in probably in four years time now, we'll have an in-depth evaluation as well. And that will actually tie in with our next strategic plan as well. So they will dovetail quite nicely together. Linda, thank you very much for spending time with us. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. Now, Melantha. Melantha Chittenden is Head of Comms Media for the Community Union. Here, she describes how community came to the conclusion that a digital working group was needed, what their work revealed, and what changed as a result. So I suppose the, 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 first, the place to start is the digital working group, uh, which was established, as I understand it, underneath the umbrella of community's three-year communication strategy. But what was the process that led you to believe that a digital working group was necessary to start with? Good question. I think really that the whole organisation had become very fed up with our membership system and how it was operating. It was very clunky. I imagine it wasn't when it first got set up, but as is the way with all of these things, over time, lots of people amend things, add things. People leave the organisation, people join the organisation. Things are amended to the extent that it just becomes very clunky. And so there was a lot of frustration kind of with how it was operating. And so it wasn't really enabling us to make decisions. And even kind of before that, it wasn't really even enabling us to find out the information that we need to know about our members to do the day to day. So as part of the comm strategy, we decided that we wanted to have a complete look at all of our data, how we collect the information, what information we hold. We found a lot of the time that actually we hold lots of information on our members that we don't necessarily need anymore. So things like fax numbers and things like that, which is very out of date. So we basically wanted to look at our membership system and the information we hold um, and really update that and make sure that it was allowing us to do the day-to-day, but also to make kind of long-term strategic decisions as well. So, so as well as identifying that some data is entirely superfluous for the way unions operate in 2022, what other sorts of things have you, you found out? Have you found out anything about the way in which the union is working as well as the data that it collects? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the biggest thing that we've been able to understand is about our members so much more than we knew before. So in particular, we've brought in a report that shows us what members have been calling our service centre about in the last 30 days um, in comparison to kind of longer periods, 90 days a year. And that enables us to understand trends across the organisation, different sectors, um, and really what is concerning our members and what they're contacting us about, which allows us to then 
be able to support them in the areas that they need. So the biggest information that we've got from it really is about our members. Wow. I mean, I'm re- that, that's virtually real-time information, isn't it? You know, that's an inval- in- invaluable tool. I also understand that the number of, of data fields on your membership system has been greatly, greatly pruned because there were so many that you found you weren't really getting any value from. Yes, exactly. I can't remember the exact numbers, actually. I think it went down from 572, maybe, and now it's just over 200. That is going to expand. Um, We've done the pruning first, and now we're going to look at what more information we can hold about our members that, as you say, is relevant to 2022. So that will expand again, but hopefully not back up to the 500 mark. In in the data working group, what was the composition like? Much has been made of the fact that often the views of data users are not given sufficient priority. Has has community recognised that and addressed it in any way? Yeah, definitely. We really wanted to make sure that the working group was kind of a cross-section across the whole organisation. So it's made up of me, another member of the comms team who does our digital organising, our head of IT, our head of membership, and then two of our assistant organisers from the regions who are accessing that data and kind of using it on the day-to-day all the time. Um, And their input has been kind of invaluable into the process as well. So yeah, absolutely. And I'd say that to anybody as well. It's really important that you make sure that anybody who's using the data or needs to be able to access it is involved in those processes around changing how you store it and things like that as well. So aside from the working group having that cross-section, we also have gone out to the whole staff group and we've asked everybody about what information they do want to use so we don't remove anything that they are finding useful that we weren't aware was being used. And then we also went out to everybody to ask them what information they think would be useful to know about members to enable them to do their jobs better and act more strategically and things as well so it's definitely been a kind of cross-organization approach well in terms of not just breaking out of silos but sort of demolishing them you'd struggle to find a better illustration i think do you think that will lead to a lasting change in the kind of culture of the union and apart from that way of working what other changes do you see coming on the back of this project Yeah, definitely around culture. I think that was really important for us. I mean, I think it's still a work in progress, as it always is. But I was really pleasantly surprised by how kind of all staff across community have got involved and wanted to feed into this process. And I know a lot of the time you can kind of say dated to people and they start to switch off. But it's been a really positive process and everybody's got involved. So definitely a work in progress with turning the culture around, but pleasantly surprised so far, which has been really positive. And Melantha, thank you very much for spending time with the Union Juice podcast. Well, thanks for that, Melantha, and thanks again to Linda. I've got to say that I think this is a really, really important report which tackles two sizable elephants that are usually in the room when we talk about data. First, exactly what do we mean? We are good at saying things about data, but not so good at defining exactly what we're talking about. And second, How can we make practical use of that data, not just to improve specific organising or servicing issues, but to change the whole culture of a union? You can download a copy of the full report from the Unions 21 website. Just go to unions21.org.uk, where you'll also find blog posts from other unions and experts with great experience in this field. Well, we are just about out of time for this special episode of the Union Jews podcast. My thanks to Tom and to Linda and Melantha and to Becky as well. But most of all, my thanks to you for taking the time and trouble to listen in. I hope that you've enjoyed what you've heard, that it's made you think a bit. As ever, we would love to hear your views on anything that we've discussed in the last 
40 minutes or so, or well, on anything or anybody you think we should feature in future episodes. You can contact the show on email at unionjews at makesyouthink.com or tweet us at jewsunion. You can find a companion blog post with background links and signposting over on the makesyouthink.com website. And we would be very grateful indeed for your support in terms of a rating on the podcast platform of your choice. If you want to hear more in a similar vein, you can check out over 100 union and labour-related shows at the Labour Radio Podcast Portal, which is at labourradionetwork.org. So that's all from me for the time being. Thanks again for joining us, and I'll see you next time on Union Jews, or maybe on the new Union Days series that will drop next month. Whatever you're doing, stay safe. Take care. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.